name is Amanda. And I'm Kristen. And, and we are the Extra, Extra Sisters. Sisters. So sit back, relax, and let's get creepy. Welcome to another Haunted Happy Hour. And in this Haunted Happy Hour for the spooky season, one of the th- devices that horror movies use a lot to scare us is based on a true story or based on true events or based on actual events. But like, is it? Right. You know. Like it, paranormal it, activity. Yeah, that it? was not. <laughs> no. That being said, that was like pretty effective. I know. know. I was like, it has to be, right? Hmm. Everyone's looking up like Mika and exactly what's her Katie, you know? Yeah, they don't exist. They're just actors. Right. But there are some horror films that are based on real events. That being said, most of the time, unless it's an actual documentary, they take something that happened. And then as, you know, Hollywood does, they dramatize the fuck out of it. Right. So we're going to talk about some films that are actually based on true stories and talk about the true story behind that film and the actual facts that it was based on. You know, I will say like sometimes based on a true story can get a little, I think, what's the word I'm looking for? Like exploity, you know? (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time, like it also on the you know, other side of the coin, I think helps us deal with some of those real life atrocities. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But, but then on the other, <laughs> this is the three headed coin, apparently. Oh, okay. On the other side of this three headed coin, these are actual people. And I think in true crime, too, there's a big problem. I am have super mixed feelings about true crime in general, like podcasts and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Because these are actual people that were kind of sensationalizing their stories. And it, I think it sometimes gets lost in that. Yeah. You know? But also at the same time, I'm a creepy person and find it fascinating. So it's like, I want to hear it, but don't do it. I mean, it's fascinating to know like why people do those things and how they mm-hmm. get to that point And like, you know, because we couldn't have never imagine doing that, mm-hmm. you know, So what makes a murderer, you know, what makes a serial killer? But then, you know, there are true crime people that are like, they make shirts on Etsy that are like romanticizing Ted Bundy and shit. And that's like, are you fucking kidding me? Right. You know, like, so it's when it's done for like, you know, and like recently with the Gabby Petito case, there were a lot of true crime people that kind of used that as like a way to gain clout and followers, you know. Instead right. of just way to report. And so it does get a little dicey. And sometimes horror movies can do that too. And with these like based on true events. Now, I don't feel like, you know, the Conjuring movies do that because I think a lot of those were again exaggerated by the <laughs> OGs anyways. Right. Looking at you, Ed and Lorraine. <laughs> I'm speaking of true crime and not Ed and Lorraine Warren, but <laughs> like just because we're on the topic of true crime, the day that we are recording this is... October 6th and they have allegedly found the Zodiac killer which is fucking crazy I didn't think that would ever happen it's some dude named Gary which doesn't surprise me right like they have not uh, confirmed it with DNA from what I understand so a lot of people are kind of holding their breath to wait for some DNA matches but There is a cold case team and there are several cold case teams it's basically a bunch of like ex-forensics people, retired detectives, they link up and they work on cold cases. And I think a group of like 30 of them came together and they linked this man, 
Gary Francis Post. It's P-O-S-T-E. And it doesn't have an accent on it. So I'm going to say Post. To the Zodiac killings and other crimes. And this man died in 2018. So he cannot be held accountable for this. But... There's still DNA that can be found from someone that has been deceased, especially as recently as 2018. Mm-hmm. So it won't have to be like Jack the Ripper where we'll never know. Exactly. And they linked him to other murders in Southern California. So, you know, that's just a huge breakthrough mm-hmm. in that case. Like yes. they linked him to letters and they were able to decipher these letters and like because of that they were able to figure out that it was him i mean it's crazy like you should look it up but just the fact that we may have and they're pretty sure found the zodiac killer right like it's one of those things where you just kind of assume that we're never gonna know yeah like i didn't assume that in my lifetime i would ever know who it is dude when i saw that i texted you and i was like bitch No fucking I didn't even believe it. I actually yeah. saw someone post about it on Twitter and I was like, no fucking way. And then I Googled it and it was like New York Post, Fox News, CNN. And I was like, oh my. Yeah, that's God. like real shit. That's not no. just conspiracy theory stuff. Yeah, I was like, no well, I mean, Fox, fucking way. Oh, yeah, sorry. right, right, right. <laughs> You're right. I was like, no fucking way. Also, speaking of Fox News. I got a little spooked because I went like head to head with an anti-vaxxer on Facebook (laughs) (laughs) and she took screenshots of the fight and she posted them in groups and people came to my Facebook, which has all of our podcast information. So uh, we never ask for reviews, but, you know, this would be the time to do it in case they decide to tank us. I'm just oh, saying. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Bring I it. Would, yeah. I don't, I, I don't regret it. <laughs> you a stupid bitch. Like, yeah, exactly. Fuck you. Right. I I may go into it on Autistatatus because that's a better platform to do that. So if you haven't listened to our other podcast, it's called Autistatatus. We talk a little bit more about, like, politics and vaccines and stuff over there. But, you know... Like I said, we don't like to ask for reviews because if you think we're good enough or bad enough, you'll do that on your own. But if it's not fair, yeah, you know, y'all need to help us out a little bit, but (laughs) I haven't seen any major tankage yet. So I'll keep you posted. They doxed our poor podcast. So sad. I'm pretty well hidden, but at the same time, bring it on. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I will go down a martyr for vaccinating. That's fine. I'm ready to fight. Just leave my husband and my dogs alone. It was all me. <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? Like, they yes. didn't have anything to do with this. I told my husband, and he was like, <sighs> I was like, look, I usually don't engage, but she really made me mad. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> <sighs> Anyways, moving on. So first movie that I'm going to start with is a film that came out. Now, I have not seen this. Actually, I'm doing four films, and I've only seen one of them. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah, some of them don't have great reviews. Oh, that's less exciting. It'd be like that sometimes. I think it's worth checking out. You know, and this one, I actually have heard of this case. So this film is called Borderland. Not to be confused with the video game Borderlands. (laughs) It's called Borderland, and the film came out in 07. Yes, 2007 movie Borderland. 
So this film is about some young people that came across a human sacrifice cult in Mexico, and it is based on a true story. God damn. So there was an actual cult. Adolfo Costanzo, the leader of the real-life variation of the cult, had not been simply a serial killer or deadly. His cult was accountable for a lot of murders. His fans were serial killers as well, each of them a lot more ruthless as well as vicious compared to your ordinary psycho. Costanzo's youth was so fucked up. His mom's memoir most likely might have been called How to Raise a Serial Killer. Awesome. Yeah. Birthed in Miami in 62 to a 15-year-old mom, he matured in Puerto Rico with two more youthful step-siblings. Though he quickly worked as a Catholic church kid, he as well as his mother covertly exercised a religious belief called, wow, Palo Mayombe? which is an offspring of West African customs. The religious belief included using a consecrated culture full of emotionally effective products, such as things like human bones, for example. Oh. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Costanzo, as well as his mom, would certainly commonly take a trip to Haiti for his spiritual education and learning. In 1972, the household transferred to Miami, where his mom was a man associated with the medication profession. He, as well as his mom, were typically apprehended for minor criminal offenses. When their next-door neighbors gossiped regarding them in general, they would certainly leave them brainless poultry. They would dig out the brains of chickens. What the fuck? Dead geese, as well as goat directly on their doorsteps. On the other hand, Costanzo ended up being the pupil of a regional sorcerer, as well as concerned, thinking he had psychic powers, allegedly visualizing the tried murder of Ronald Reagan in 1981. In 1983, Costanzo transferred to Mexico City as well as quickly hired his first five devotees. So we started the cult in the 80s in Mexico City. I feel like the late 80s and 90s were just like, I know that cults have always been a thing, but that was like really when like we had like the crazy, crazy, like, you know. Yeah, I feel like I remember that's when people were talking a lot about having, you know, save kids from cults and the deprogramming. And well, the 80s is really when satanic panic took off in the suburbs, too. Yeah. So So he transferred to Mexico City and he started getting followers. He began providing his solutions as a witch physician, casting spells for mobsters that were expected to provide them wonderful powers as well as the best of luck and prosperity. These spells all included the sacrifice of pets, many times unique ones such Mm -hmm. as zebras, snakes, and lion cubs. Though this was a rewarding company, Costanzo wished to include human remains to the components for his spells. Initially, he robbed tombs. However, he desired fresh components. Mutilated bodies began to show up around the city. Costanzo would certainly skin or sever his sufferers, making certain to eliminate them in one of the most agonizing methods possible. The body matter throughout this duration is uncertain. However, he heard as well as eliminated a minimum of 20 individuals. Oh, Thinking his spells were the reason for the cartel's success, he required to end up being a complete companion of part of the cartel. When they declined him, relatives began to disappear. Their bodies would show up later with things missing, ears, toes, and their brains as well. And in one case, a spinal column was missing. Ew, missing. Okay, I know that's weird, and it is weird. I'm not saying it's not weird. All this is fucked up. But there's this dude that owns an oddity shop that I follow and he has literally a wall of spines. Ooh. Like human spines. And I'm like, 
do I want to buy a human spine? <laughs> like they've all been ethically sourced. I don't know how you ethically source a spine. Right. But I kind of want one, you know, like this is my human spine and these are my tarantulas. Oh my God. <laughs> Thinking that he required a woman follower in order to help entice male victims, he attracted as well as hired a, a woman named Sarah Aldrete the sweetheart of a criminal offense manager, nicknaming her La Madrina, as well as making her his high priestess. He relocated with his followers to Rancho Santa Elena, a separated home in the desert, which worked as the main office for his medication company. There he proceeded performing his human sacrifices, untraceable, thinking the powers he got from them made him basically untraceable to authorities. So he was doing these sacrifices thinking that no one would ever know. The Mexican authorities never, like, caught on or examined him until Mark Kilroy, an American university student, and I think Mark actually was from the University of Texas, if I remember correctly, because I do know this story, mm -hmm. and see, where he fucked up was a white man from, yep, UT Austin. Mm, yep. He went for the most privileged group in the United States. So the United States authorities got involved. And because the U.S. authorities got involved, the Mexican authorities, they were under a lot of pressure. And they discovered the a cattle ranch. And they found Kilroy's brain in a cauldron together with various other body parts. Fifteen mutilated bodies were discovered at the cattle ranch. Costanzo initially got away, however, was quickly found. When the authorities had him basically cornered in an apartment in Mexico City, he bought, brought his devotees and his priestess, and they basically were all founded guilty of several murders. Good. So, poor yeah. kid. Yeah. I mean, poor everyone. So his last murder is the one that got him caught. However, some places murder count as high as 70. God damn. Yeah. And before he died, he stated, like, because, you know, they were like, mm, you're going to die. As Valdez stated, he was taken, or one of his followers said, El Padrino will certainly not be dead for long. So, yeah, that is what the film Borderland is based on. And I could definitely see how that would be an incredibly compelling, like, the material wrote itself. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you don't even have to do anything, you know? Yeah, I wrote it down. I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch that now. Now, that being said, I think that the film, that one would be hard for me knowing that, like, what that family went through and all. Wow. Okay. I was fucking wrong. Borderland from 2007 has a 100% from the critics. Oh, holy shit. Okay. And only has a 43% from the audience, but it ha was, has a 100% from the critics. How many critics? Only eight. But the fact that there's a consensus of yeah. 100%, sometimes there are only eight or nine. Because you have to be a verified critic on Rotten Tomatoes. You can't just be like, I have a podcast. <laughs> you have to write a real article. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Wow. Okay, so Borderland 2007 might be one to look up if, you know, torture is your thing. Yeah, looks rough. Moving on. So my next one is a film called Snowtown. 
And this film is actually an Australian film. So the film Snowtown, also known as the Snowtown Murders, came out in Australia in 2011. And it is a biographical crime drama based on true events. And it actually has won a ton of awards. So I guess this one's pretty good too. But again, based on a true story. This the Snowtown murders were also known as the bodies and barrels murders, which, you know, yeah, sounds real rough. So initially, the body of Clinton Trezice was found in at Lower Light in 1944. And Lower Light is a township in that area. Basically, the Snowtown murders were a series of murders committed by three people three guys between 92 and 99 so this went on for years and just the first body they found the reason i brought that up was because they didn't find the first body until 1994 yeah jesus yeah and there was a fourth person convicted for helping dispose of the bodies so there were like three people that did them and then someone else helped them like dispose of them so this was like a whole group effort here most of the bodies were found in barrels in an abandoned bank vault in Snowtown, hence the names given in the press for the murders. Only one of the victims was killed in Snowtown itself, which is approximately 87 miles north of Adelaide, where quite a few of the victims were found. And neither the 12 victims nor the three perpetrators were from the town. Although motivation for the murders is unclear, the killers were led by Bunting, which is one of the men that was you know, he's kind of the head of the murdering, if you will. John Bunting, Robert Wagner, and James Vlasakis, I believe. But Bunting was your head guy here. They were led by Bunting to believe that the victims were pedophiles, homosexuals, or weak. So he just was picking people he wanted to kill and saying, well, that guy's, you know, he's gay. Let's kill him. Right. Or he's weak. Like, okay. Kind of reminds me of like, you know, like a natural selection type of thing. Mm-hmm. In the case of some victims, the murders were preceded by torture, and efforts were made to appropriate victims' identities, social security payments, and bank accounts. Although initially the notoriety of the murders led to a short-term economic boost for tourists, because of course, it created a stigma, which authorities considered a change of the town's name and identity. Jesus. Yeah. So they found that first body in 1994, although no connection to Bunting, which is the head, head, the ringleader, you know, was made at that time. Similarly, the death of another victim, Thomas Trivellian, in 1997 was initially treated as a suicide. For them to mistake a murder as a suicide, I don't, you know, it's hard to give credit yeah. to like killers, but they must have been pretty, I don't know how to say this with cooth but like pretty clean kills you know what i mean mm -hmm. they must have been set up pretty well because especially even in the 90s you know i mean how do you make that look like a suicide and get away with it mm -hmm. it was police inquiries into elizabeth hayden's disappearance which eventually led them to snowtown and on may 20th 1999 the remains of eight victims were found by the south australian police in six plastic barrels in a bank vault for in this bank vault. Yeah, they, I guess they just put them in a safety deposit box, Whoa. you know. Like, <laughs> Jesus. 
yes, this is my barrel. I, right. I this this is a barrel full of money. Can I please put it in the bank? And Jeez. they're like, sure, 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 sure. For this reason, the murders were dubbed the bodies and barrels murders. It is believed that the bodies had been held in several locations in South Australia before being moved to Snowtown in 1999. Prosecutors believe that the killers moved the bodies after they became aware of the ongoing police investigation. Two more bodies were found buried in the backyard of Bunting's house in Adelaide. Police later arrested and charged Bunting, Wagner, Vlasakis, and Mark Hayden on May 21st, 1999 for the murders. At the time of the arrest, Vlasakis lived in Bunting's home. The trial of Bunting and Wagner lasted almost 12 months, the longest in the history of South Australia. In December 2003, Bunting was convicted of committing 11 murders and Wagner of 10 murders, of which he had confessed to only three. Vlasakis pleaded guilty to four of the murders. In 2004, Hayden was convicted on five counts of assisting with the murders, of which he admitted to only two. The jury did not come to a decision on two murder charges against Hayden and another charge of assisting murder at which point the senior prosecutor indicated that she would seek a retrial on those charges. The final count against Bunting and Wagner, that of murdering Suzanne Allen, was dropped on May 7th, 07, when a jury had been unable to reach a verdict. You know, I I, I got to give jury some props sometimes, because if you know these people killed all of these other people in the same way, how do you go, not enough substantial evidence? It's like, well, obviously he killed her. Uh-huh, right. But the justice system, even in Australia, doesn't work that way. You have to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they killed that person. And if right. you can't, it doesn't work, even if you know they did it because it was the exact same way, exact same area mm -hmm. that all these other people were found. But you still can't convict. Like, I would not be able to be a juror. I'd be like, I, in good faith, cannot not convict. Exactly. Like, <laughs> just, like, I would just be a bad juror. Like. I just, you know, because my first, I, you know, obviously I want innocent people to walk, but you know he's not innocent because they've confessed yeah. to these other murders. No. <laughs> Agreed. They did demolish the house where Bunting lived and buried two bodies. And the bank with a four bedroom attached house was placed on auction in February 2012, but only reached half its reserved price of $200,000. After holding an open house, which raised $700 for charity through charging an interest fee, the property sold later that year on September 27th for just over $185,000, with the new owners intending to live in the house while running a business from the bank. A plaque was installed to commemorate the victims. Thanks for the plaque. Yes. They're like, yeah, yeah, we just want it for a normal house. But since y'all can't stop fucking bothering us, here's a plaque. <laughs> like, <laughs> but that, they got it for a steal, though. Would you buy yeah. a murder house? Hmm. No. Okay, what? I guess. Okay, this is really fucked up. <laughs> it would depend on the level of murder. If it was like a torture murder house, absolutely not. I, I agree with you. If it was like, you know, okay, I don't know how to cuthfully talk about this either. <laughs> okay, we're just going to say if it was a culty ritual murder, no. No, absolutely not. If it was a normal, <laughs> like, no murder is normal. But you know what I mean? Like, I have a family member that was shot and killed by her husband because he was cheating. I would buy that house. Yeah, I don't see. You know, like that's awful and not normal. Like that, that's 
awful and it was it like shook my family to the core obviously but like that that's like a, a crime of passion you know what i mean yeah like if somebody was like yeah they like dismembered people and you know <laughs> there's a fucking satan well i guess not satanic stuff doesn't bother me because that's usually just movie stuff but there's a fucking you know tribute to pazuzu in the fucking basement right no hell no absolutely not so yeah i think it depends on what kind of murder are we talking but see they don't have to disclose yes this was a ritual to a demon or this was a crime of passion they just have to say right murder and do they have to is that i think that's only in certain states or it's a myth i don't know yeah and i think it's only one away so i think it's like the first buyer they have to hear about it but then if they sell i don't think they have to tell after that well yeah because it, it you know there was a murder and then there wasn't so yeah. <laughs> it's fine <laughs> it's not a trend okay. clearly it's fine you can buy this house. They left and not in get- like three months, but it's okay. It's all right. Yeah, clearly you can live in this house and not get murked. <laughs> it's not the house. <clears throat> so I only have one story because it is eight pages long, y'all. I couldn't cut it. It was way too interesting. So <laughs> I'm gonna cut in every yes. now and then. But- yes. So bear with me. There's gonna be lots of water drinking with this one. The movie that I'm doing is The Girl Next Door from 2007. And The Girl Next Door is about a an aunt who is taking care of her two nieces. And then she ends up just turning wicked dark and she ends up torturing one of them in the basement and allows the neighborhood kids to help out. And the girl ends up dying. Mm, pass. <laughs> yeah. Now, here's the story. So I'm going to give you the information on the two main people first, and then we'll move into the actual story. So Gertrude Benazowski was born in Indianapolis, the third of six children, and her family was working class. On October 5th, 1939, Benazowski saw her 50-year-old father die from a sudden heart attack. Six years later, she dropped out of high school at the age of 16 to marry 18-year-old John Benazowski, to whom she bore four children. Although John had a volatile temper and occasionally beat his wife, the two had remained together for 10 years prior to their first divorce. Following her divorce, she married a man named Edward Guthrie. This marriage lasted just three months before the couple divorced. Shortly thereafter, Benazowski remarried her first husband, bearing him two more children. The couple divorced for a second time in 1963. Weeks after her third divorce, Benazowski began a relationship with a 22-year-old named Dennis Lee Wright, who also physically abused her. She had one child with Wright, Dennis Lee Wright Jr. Shortly after the birth of his son, Wright abandoned Gertrude. Shortly thereafter, Benazowski filed a paternity suit against Wright for financial support of their child, although Wright was seldom able to pay for the upkeep of their son. By 1965, Gertrude lived alone with her seven children, Paula, 17, Stephanie, 15, John, 12, Marie, 11, Shirley, 10, James, 8, and Dennis Lee Wright Jr., 1. Although 36 years old and 5 feet 6 inches in height, she weighed only 100 pounds and has been described as a haggard, underweight, asthmatic, chain smoker, suffering from depression due to the stress of three failed marriages, a failed relationship, and a recent miscarriage. In addition to the sporadic checks she received from her first husband, a former Indianapolis policeman, which she primarily relied upon to financially support her children, 
Gertrude occasionally performed odd jobs for neighbors and acquaintances, such as sewing or cleaning in order to earn money. Banaszewski resided in Indianapolis, where her monthly rent was $55. Sylvia Likens was the third of five children born to carnival workers, Lester Likens and his wife Elizabeth. She was born between two sets of fraternal twins, Daniel and Diana, two years older than she, and Benny and Jenny, one year younger. Jenny Likens suffered from polio, causing one of her legs to be weaker than the other. She was afflicted with a notable limp and had to wear a steel brace on one leg. Lester and Elizabeth's marriage was unstable. They often sold candy, beer, and soda at carnival stands around Indiana throughout the summer, moving frequently and regularly experiencing severe financial difficulties. The Likens' sons regularly traveled with them in order to assist with their job, but Sylvia and Jenny were discouraged from doing the same out of concern for their safety and education. As a result, both sisters frequently stayed with their relatives, often their grandmother. In her teenage years, Sylvia occasionally earned spending money by babysitting, running errands, or performing ironing chores for friends and neighbors, often giving her mother part of her earnings. She has been described as a friendly, confident, and lively girl with long, wavy, light brown hair extending below her shoulders and was known as Cookie to her friends. Although exuberant, Likens always kept her mouth closed when smiling due to a missing front tooth, which she had lost while roughhousing with one of her brothers during a childhood game. She also had a fondness for music, in particular the Beatles, and was notably protective of her markedly more timid and insecure younger sister. On several occasions, the two sisters would visit a local skating rink, where Sylvia would help Jenny skate by holding her hand while Jenny skated on her unaffected foot. By June 1965, Sylvia and Jenny Likens resided with their parents in Indianapolis. On July 3rd, their mother was arrested and subsequently jailed for shoplifting. Shortly thereafter, Lester Likens arranged for his daughters to board with Gertrude Benazowski, the mother of two girls with whom the sisters had recently become acquainted while studying at Arsenal Technical High School, Paula and Stephanie Benazowski. At the time of this boarding agreement, Gertrude assured Lester she would care for his daughters until his return as if they were her own children. Shortly after the July 4th holiday, the sisters moved into 3850 East New York Street in order for their father and later their mother to travel to the East Coast with the carnival, with the understanding that Gertrude would receive weekly boarding fees of $20 to care for their daughters until they returned to collect Sylvia and Jenny in November of that year. During the initial weeks in which Sylvia and Jenny resided at the Banaszewski household, the sisters were subjected to very little discipline or abuse. Likens regularly sang along to pop records with Stephanie, and she willingly participated in housework at the Banaszewski residence. Both girls also regularly attended Sunday school with the Banaszewski children, with the pastor commending Sylvia's piety. Although Lester Likens had agreed to pay Gertrude, $20 a week in exchange for the care of his daughters, after approximately two weeks, these payments failed to consistently arrive upon the prearranged dates, occasionally arriving one or two days late. In response, Gertrude began venting her frustration at this fact upon the sisters by beating their bare buttocks with various instruments, such as a quarter-inch thick paddle, making statements such as, well, I took care of you two little bitches for a week for nothing. On one occasion, in late August, both girls were beaten approximately 15 times on the back with the aforementioned paddle, after Paula had accused the sisters of eating too much food at a church supper the household children had attended. By mid-August 1965, Gertrude had begun to focus her abuse almost exclusively upon Sylvia, with her primary motivation likely being jealousy of her physical appearance and potential in life. 
This initial abuse included subjecting Lycans to beatings and starvation, forcing her to eat leftovers or spoiled fruit out of garbage cans. On one occasion, Lycans was accused of stealing candy she had actually purchased. On another occasion in late August, Lycans was subjected to humiliation when she claimed to have a boyfriend in Long Beach whom she had met in the spring of 1965 when her family lived in California. In response to hearing this, Gertrude asked her if she had ever done anything with a boy. To which Likens, unsure of her meaning, replied, I guess so, and offered that she had gone skating with boys there and had once gone to a park on the beach with them and Jenny. Continuing the conversation with Stephanie and Jenny, Likens mentioned that she had once lain under the covers with her boyfriend. Upon hearing this, Gertrude asked, why did you do that, Sylvia? Likens replied, I don't know, and shrugged. Several days later, Gertrude returned to the subject with Likens, telling her, you're certainly getting big in the stomach, Sylvia. Looks like you're going to have a baby. Likens thought Gertrude was kidding with her and said, yeah, it sure is getting big. I'm, I'm just going to have to go on a diet. However, Gertrude then informed her and the other girls in the house that whenever they did something with a boy, they would be sure to have a baby. She then kicked Lycan in the genitals. Paula, herself overweight, three months pregnant, and also jealous of Lycan's physical appearance, then participated in attacking Lycan's, knocking her off her chair and onto the kitchen floor, shouting, you ain't fit to sit in a chair. On another occasion, as the family ate supper, Gertrude, Paula, and a neighborhood boy named Randy Gordon Leper force-fed Likens a hot dog overloaded with condiments including mustard, ketchup, and spices. Likens vomited as a result and was later forced to consume what she had regurgitated. Oh my god. Yep. In what was Likens' only act of retaliation, she is alleged to have spread a rumor at Arsenio Technical High School that Stephanie and Paula Benazowski were prostitutes. She supposedly did this because she was upset with the household singling her out for similar accusations. While at school, Stephanie was jokingly propositioned by a boy who told her that Likens had started this rumor about her. Upon returning home that day, Stephanie questioned Likens about the rumor, and she admitted to starting it. Stephanie punched her in response, but Likens apologized to her in tears, and Stephanie then also began to cry. However, when Stephanie's boyfriend, 15-year-old Coy Hubbard, heard of the rumor, he brutally attacked Likens, slapping her, banging her head against the wall, and flipping her backwards onto the floor. When Gertrude found out, she used a paddle to beat Likens. On another occasion, Paula beat Likens about the face with such force that she broke her own wrist, having primarily focused her blows upon Likens' teeth and eyes. Later, Paula used the cast on her wrist to further beat Likens. Gertrude repeatedly falsely accused Likens of promiscuity and of engaging in prostitution, delivering rants to Likens regarding the filthiness of prostitution and women in general. Gertrude would later occasionally force Jenny to strike her own sister, beating Jenny if she did not comply. Coy Hubbard and several of his classmates frequently visited the Banizowski residence to both physically and verbally torment Likens often collaborating with the Banazowski children and Gertrude herself. With the active encouragement of Gertrude, these neighborhood children routinely beat Likens, sometimes using her as a practice dummy in violent judo sessions, lacerating her body, burning her skin with lit cigarettes in an excess of 100 times, and severely injuring her genitals. To entertain Gertrude and her teenage accomplices, Likens was forced at one point to strip naked in the family living room and masturbate with a glass Pepsi-Cola bottle in their presence. With Gertrude stating to all present that this act of humiliation was for Sylvia to prove to Jenny what kind of girl you are. Just, if anybody freaked out by that, I just want to let you know. Trigger warning. There is no actual rape. 
that we know of in this case. It is not great, but there you go. Gertrude eventually forbade Likens from attending a school after she confessed to having stolen a gym suit from the school due to Gertrude having refused to purchase the clothing for her. For this act of theft, Gertrude whipped Likens with a three-inch wide police belt. Gertrude then switched her conversation to the evils of premarital sex before repeatedly kicking Likens in the genitals. As Stephanie rallied to Likens' defense, shouting, She didn't do anything! Gertrude then burned Likens' fingertips with matches before further whipping her. A few days later, Gertrude repeatedly whipped Jenny with the police belt after she reportedly stole a single tennis shoe from the school to wear on her strong foot. The Likens sisters are fearful of notifying either family members or adults at their school of the increasing incidents of abuse and neglect they were enduring, as both were afraid that doing so would only worsen their predicament. In July and August, both Lester and Elizabeth Likens would occasionally return to Indianapolis to visit their daughters, whenever their travel schedule afforded them the opportunity. The last occasion Lester and Elizabeth visited their daughters was in late, late August. On this occasion, neither girl exhibited any visible sign of distress about their mistreatment to their parents. This was likely because both were in the presence of Gertrude and her children. Almost immediately after Lester and Elizabeth had left the Banazowski household on their final visit, Gertrude turned to face Likens and stated, What are you going to do now, Sylvia? Now they're gone. On one occasion in September, the girls encountered their older sister, Diana Shoemaker, at a local park. Both Jenny and Sylvia informed Diana about the abuse they were enduring at the hands of their caregiver, adding that Sylvia was being specifically targeted for physical abuse, and almost always for things she had neither said nor done. Neither sister mentioned the actual address where they had resided initially. Diana believed her sisters must be exaggerating their claims regarding the scope of their mistreatment. Several weeks prior to this, Sylvia and Jenny had encountered Diana in the same park while in the company of 11-year-old Marie Benazowski, and Sylvia had been given a sandwich to eat when she mentioned to her sister that she was hungry. Likens remained silent about the matter, although Marie revealed this fact to her family in late September. In response, Gertrude accused Likens of engaging in gluttony before she and Paula choked and bludgeoned her. The pair then subjected Likens to a scalding bath in order to cleanse her of sin, with Gertrude grabbing Likens' hair and repeatedly banging her head against the bath to revive her whenever she fainted. Shortly after this incident, the father of a neighborhood boy named Michael John Moreau phoned Arsenio High Technical High School to anonymously report that a girl with open sores across her entire body was living in the Banaszewski household. As Likens had not attended school for several days, a school nurse visited East New York Street to investigate these claims. Gertrude claimed to the nurse that Likens had run away from her home the previous week and that she was unaware of her actual whereabouts, adding that Likens was out of control and that her open sores were a result of Likens' refusal to maintain decent personal hygiene. Gertrude further claimed that Likens was a bad influence on both her own children and her sister. The school made no further investigations concerning Likens' welfare. On or about August 1st, Diana Shoemaker discovered that her sisters were temporarily residing at the Banaszewski residence. She visited the property in an attempt to initiate regular contact. Gertrude, however, refused Diana's entrance to her property, stating that she had received permission from their parents not to allow either of the girls to see her. She then ordered Diana off her property. Approximately two weeks later, Diana encountered Jenny by chance close to the home and inquired as to Sylvia's welfare. She was informed, I can't tell you or I'll get into trouble. Due to the increase in the frequency and brutality of torture and mistreatment she was subjected to, Likens gradually became incontinent. She was denied any access to the bathroom, being forced to wet herself. 
As a form of punishment for her incontinence on October 6th, Gertrude threw Likens into the basement and tied her up. Here, Likens was often kept naked, rarely fed, and frequently deprived of water. Occasionally, she was tied to the railing of the basement stairs with her feet barely touching the ground. In the weeks prior to locking Likens in the family basement, Gertrude had increasingly abused and tormented Likens. She would occasionally falsely claim to the children in the household that either she herself or one of them had been the recipient of direct insults from Likens in the hope this would goad them into belittling or attacking her. On one occasion, Gertrude held a knife aloft and challenged Likens to fight me back, to which Likens replied she did not know how to fight. In response, Gertrude inflicted a light scour wound on Likens' leg. Physical and mental torment such as this was occasionally ceased by the Banazowskis to watch their favorite television shows. It's like fucking Harry Potter. Right. That's not funny, but like, Jesus. Yeah. Neighborhood children were also occasionally charged five cents apiece to see the display of Lycan's body and to humiliate, beat, scald, burn, and ultimately mutilate her. Throughout Lycan's captivity in the basement, Gertrude frequently, with the assistance of her children and the neighborhood children, restrained and gagged Lycan's before placing her in a bathtub filled with scalding water and proceeding to rub salt into her wounds. On one occasion, Gertrude and her 12-year-old son, John Jr., rubbed urine and feces from Gertrude's one-year-old son's diaper into Lycan's mouth before giving her a cup half-filled with water and stating the water was all she would receive for the remainder of the day. On October 22nd, John Jr. tormented Likens by, off- by offering to allow her to eat a bowl of soup with her fingers and then quickly taking away the bowl when Likens, by this stage suffering from extreme malnourishment, attempted to eat the food. Gertrude eventually allowed Likens to sleep upstairs on the condition that she learned not to wet herself. That night, Sylvia whispered to Jenny to secretly give her a glass of water before falling asleep. The following morning, Gertrude discovered that Likens had urinated on herself. As a punishment, Likens was forced to insert an empty glass Coca-Cola bottle into her vagina in the presence of the Banazowski children before Gertrude ordered her into the basement. Shortly thereafter, Gertrude shouted for Likens to return to the kitchen, then ordered her to strip naked before before proclaiming to her, You have branded my daughters. Now I am going to brand you. She began carving the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, into Likens' abdomen with a heated needle. When Gertrude was unable to finish the branding, she instructed one of the neighborhood children present, 14-year-old Richard Dean Hobbs, to finish etching the words into Lycan's flesh as she took Jenny to a nearby grocery store. In what Hobbs would later insist were short, light etchings, he continued to brand the text into Lycan's abdomen as she clenched her teeth and moaned. Both Hobbs and 10-year-old Shirley Banizowski then led Likens into the basement, where each proceeded to use an anchor bolt in an attempt to burn the letter S beneath Likens' left breast. Although they applied one section of the loop backwards, and this deep burn scar would resemble the numeral three. Gertrude later taunted Likens by claiming she would never be able to marry due to the words carved on her stomach, stating, Sylvia, what are you going to do now? You can't get married now. What are you going to do? Weeping, Likens replied, I guess there's nothing I can do. Later that day, Likens was forced to display the carving to the neighborhood children, with Gertrude claiming she had received the inscription at a sex party. That night, Sylvia confided to her sister, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell it. The following day, Gertrude woke Likens and forced her to write a letter as she dictated the contents, which were intended to mislead her parents into believing their daughter had run away. 
The content of this letter was intended to frame a group of anonymous local boys for extensively abusing and mutilating Likens after she had initially agreed to engage in sexual relations with them before they inflicted the extreme abuse and torture upon her body. After Likens had written this letter, Gertrude finished formulating her plan to have John Jr. and Jenny blindfold Sylvia, then take her to a nearby wooded area known as Jimmy's Forest and leave her there to die. After she had finished writing the letter, Likens was then again tied to the stair railing and offered crackers to eat, although she refused them, saying, Give it to the dog. I don't want it. In response, Gertrude forced the crackers into Likens' mouth before she and John Jr. beat her, particularly around the stomach. On October 25th, Likens attempted to escape from the basement after overhearing the conversation between Gertrude and John Jr. to aban- about abandoning her to die. She attempted to flee to the front door, however, due to her extensive injuries and general weakness, Gertrude caught her before she could escape the property. Likens was then given toast to eat, but was unable to consume the food due to her extreme state of dehydration. Gertrude forced the toast into her mouth before repeatedly striking her face with a curtain rod until sections of the instrument were bent into right angles. Coy Hubbard then took the curtain rod from Gertrude and stuck Likens one further time, rendering her unconscious. Gertrude then dragged Likens into the basement. That evening, Likens desperately attempted to alert neighbors by screaming for help and hitting the walls of the basement with a spade. One immediate neighbor would later inform the police she heard the desperate commotion and that she had identified the source as emanating from the basement of 3850 East New York Street, but that as the noise had suddenly ceased at approximately 3 a.m., she decided not to inform the police about the disturbance. By the morning of October 26, Likens was unable to either speak intelligibly or correctly coordinate the movement of her limbs. Gertrude moved Likens into the kitchen and, having propped her back against the wall, attempted to feed her a donut and a glass of milk. She threw Likens to the floor in frustration when Likens was unable to correctly move the glass of milk to her lips. She was then returned to the basement. Shortly thereafter, Likens became delirious, repeatedly moaning and mumbling. When Paula asked her to recite the English alphabet, Likens was unable to recite anything beyond the first four letters or to raise herself off the ground. In response, Paula verbally threatened her to either stand up or she would inflict a long jump upon her. Gertrude then ordered Likens, who had defecated, to clean herself. That afternoon, several of Likens' other tormentors gathered in the basement. Likens jerkingly moved her arms in an apparent attempt to point at the faces of the tormentors she could recognize, making statements such as, You're Ricky and You're Gertie, before Gertrude tersely shouted, Shut up! I know who I am! Minutes later, Likens unsuccessfully attempted to bite into a rotten pear she had been given to eat, stating she could feel the looseness in her teeth. Upon hearing this, Jenny replied, Don't you remember, Sylvia? Your front tooth was knocked out when you were seven. Jenny then left Sylvia in the basement to perform gardening chores for neighbors in the hope of earning spending money. In an attempt to wash Likens, a laughing John Jr. sprayed her with a garden hose brought to the house that afternoon by Randy Lepper at Gertrude's request. Likens again desperately attempted to exit the basement but collapsed before she could reach the stairs. In response to this effort, Gertrude stamped upon Likens' head before standing and staring at her for several moments. Shortly after 5.30 p.m., Richard Hobbs returned to the Banowski, the Banzowski residence and immediately proceeded to the basement. He slipped on the wet basement stairs and fell heavily to the floor of the basement to be confronted with the sight of Stephanie crying and cuddling 
Lichen's emaciated and lacerated body after she had been ordered by her mother to clean Sylvia. Steffi and Richard then decided to give Lichen's a warm, soapy bath and dress her in new clothes. They then laid her upon a mattress in one of the bedrooms as Sylvia muttered her final wish that her daddy was here and that Stephanie would take her home. Stephanie then turned to her younger sister, Shirley, exclaiming, Oh, she'll be all right. When Stephanie realized that Likens was not breathing, she attempted to apply mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, as Gertrude repeatedly shouted to the children in the house that Likens was faking her death. Likens was 16 years old when she finally succumbed to her injuries. The autopsy of Likens' body revealed she had suffered an excess of 150 separate wounds across her entire body, in addition to being extremely emaciated at the time of her death. The wounds themselves varied in location, nature, severity, and the stage of healing. Her injuries included burns, severe bruising, and extensive muscle and nerve damage. Her vaginal cavity was almost swollen shut, although an examination of the canal determined that her hymen was still intact, discrediting Gertrude's assertions Likens had been three months pregnant, a prostitute, and promiscuous. Moreover, all of Likens' fingernails were broken backwards, and most of the external layers of skin upon the child's face, breasts, neck, and right knee had peeled or receded. In her death throes, Lycan's head evidently bitten through her lips, partially severing sections of them from her face. Yeah, that bitch should have, they should have killed her. I think she got out of prison, though. She did. Yep. They only sent her and two of the boys that did this to prison. The boys only got two years each and she got out in 85 so they did this in 65 she got out in 85 on parole hell no absolutely not she should have no i mean it's not it does not help anything at all this is absolutely terrible but i was reading up on it and basically everyone attached to the story died of some sort of cancer within like five years of getting out i mean like everyone failed that girl absolutely every single person yep that's so sad and she only had to make it to november and october 26th yeah mm. yep I, I think i would have just like i don't my will to live would have left the building by that point you know yeah but i mean she was tied up all the time like she couldn't even take her own life yeah that's true it's so sad yeah i I did watch the movie the movie was okay thankfully it wasn't as brutal as this story is because wow but yeah yeah yeah. i'm sure yeah no that's like yeah like trigger warning on the episode kind of stuff right there yeah, definitely. Sorry to everyone. I apologize. Yeah, that's... I mean, another thing is, too, like, this. that's one of those things where it's, like, I personally probably would have left that alone and not made it a movie. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, I get where they were going because it is so crazy. Like, that is... I just kept reading it, and like I said, I couldn't cut anything. It was... I mean, not in a good way, but it was way too fascinating. I couldn't cut any of it out. But I, I like I get why you might want to might be interested in it, but I agree I would never have made that into a movie. Mm-mm. Maybe a documentary. Yeah, definitely. But not a like just about it, you know, like you just read it, but not like a theatrical 
release drama. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And the uh, evil aunt or caregiver. This is not funny, but it was kind of funny to me. In the movie, she's played by the sister in 16 Candles. And I was like, that's Mm. fucking weird. Yeah, I don't know. Like that that's one of those things where it like rides that line. And, it, and horror does that a lot, you know. It's like we have to draw from real life, but it's like real life can be so brutal sometimes. Maybe we should just leave it alone, you know. Right? Yeah. Those is... were real people. Like she was a real person that went through that. Yeah, that is a real like that is such an intense case of child abuse. I mean, bringing into the neighborhood kids into it charging them five cents a piece to come join like wow wow and depending on how old the kids were some of them probably too young to really understand right but also and i i understand that this was the 60s and it's a different time and i know people didn't really talk to their kids but you can't tell me there wasn't one of them going what did you do today johnny oh i saw a girl tied up in the basement that's Uh, fucking weird Right. And nobody was like, let's, we should, we should look at that. Because again, it's the fucking 60s and people are like, oh, you mind your own business. Like you, you stay on your side of the street. No. We're going to let them parent their children the way they see fit. Right. It's tying them up in the basement and burning them. That's fine. Yeah. I know, you know, there's the whole 60s and, you know, there wasn't really a child abuse. That's fucking child abuse. That is fucking torture. Yeah. I think that anybody in the 60s would have been like, Hey, um, yeah. don't brand your child yeah. with needles. I don't know. And the that she was she was only sixteen. That's so sad. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, everyone. Well, thanks for listening. I'm not even going to do my last. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. So my next one is based on a film called The Afflicted from 2011, which is a horror crime film, obviously, based on the crimes of Teresa Knorr. And it, uh, it like, clearly, uh, like, already off the bat says loosely based. So, you know. Oh, okay. Take that as you will. And, like, most of these things. I'm sure the first one even, too, like, loosely based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I would also like to give a trigger warning for child abuse. You know, maybe we should just. (laughs) 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 Like, but I mean, that's what they like. Okay, let's look at movies that have come out recently. Run, Mm -hmm. child abuse. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not saying that's a good thing at all. I'm saying like, what what are we doing? (laughs) Like, we're making these films because we're like, hmm. Jesus, like <laughs> child abuse, torture. These are the fun things. Well, it's just like that's what's gonna get people like really Upset in their feelings, passionate. Yeah, you know, in English, when you learned about like ethos and pathos and all yeah. that stuff when you were writing, that's what they're doing. Yeah, they're just taking it from real life. So, Teresa, Jimmy, Francine, Nor, Cross. <laughs> God dang. Yeah. Was born March 14th, 1946. And she was convicted of torturing and murdering two of her six children while using the others to facilitate and cover up her crimes. Jesus. She's currently serving two consecutive life sentences. At least there's that. At least she didn't get out on parole. 
Yeah. You know, granted, she did actually murder. But I would also argue the other woman did, too. Oh, no. She absolutely did. Like Yeah. But like, she fucking stepped on her head right before she fucking died. Why didn't she get life, though? Like, stupid. She, because it was the 80s and she was a woman. Basically, she told the parole board that she did this because she was under the effects of drugs. The drugs that she's talking, just wait, the drugs she's talking about is asthma medication. She was fucking albuterol. God damn it. (laughs) She was under the effects of drugs and she would never have done that now. But she literally up to the day she was at her parole hearing still never said that she did anything wrong. She always blamed it on the kids, on her asthma medication, everything. But they still let her out. I hope her death was painful. It was cancer. Unfortunately, it was. Well, not unfortunately in that case, but unfortunately in my case, for what I've seen, it was painful. So it was probably painful, fortunately for her. Hopefully they didn't give her morphine. She had cancer within, uh, I think it was lung cancer within five years of getting out. She died of lung cancer. Fuck that bitch. Anyways, we're talking about Teresa Noor. Nora was born in Sacramento, California. She was the younger of two daughters born to Swanee Gay. That is the cutest name. And James Cross. Swanee Cross had a son and a daughter from a previous marriage. Jim Cross worked as an assistant cheesemaker at a local dairy. He eventually saved enough money to buy a house in Rio Linda, California. In the late 1950s, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which forced him to quit his job. He developed depression and reportedly took his frustrations and anger out on his family. Swanee Cross kept the family afloat financially. Teresa was reportedly very close to her mother and was devastated when she died of congestive heart failure in March 1961. Thereafter, unable to keep the family home, Jim Cross sold it. On September 29, 1962, 16-year-old Teresa married Clifford Clyde Sanders, a man five years her senior whom she had met a few months prior. Immediately, she dropped out of high school and became pregnant. And on July 16, 63, she gave birth to her first child, Howard Clyde Sanders. The Sanders marriage was rocky as Teresa was possessive and repeatedly accused Sanders of infidelity. The couple argued frequently, and on June 22, 64, Teresa claimed that Sanders had punched her in the face during one argument. Teresa reported that the reported the incident to police but refused to press charges against Sanders. The assault charges were subsequently dropped. On July 6, 1964, the day after Sanders' birthday, the couple were arguing because Sanders had spent his birthday out with friends instead of at home. During the argument, Sanders was informed Teresa that he was leaving her. Teresa became enraged and shot Sanders in the back with a rifle as he was walking out the door. Jesus. Teresa was arrested and charged with Sanders' murder, to which she pleaded not guilty, claiming she was acting in self-defense. Yeah, shooting somebody in the back. Super defensive. Definitely. <laughs> During her trial, Teresa, who was pregnant with her second child, claimed she had shot Sanders because he was a violent alcoholic who physically abused her. Several of Sanders' relatives testified that Sanders was neither violent nor abusive, while the prosecution claimed that Teresa killed Sanders maliciously and without provocation. Teresa's older sister also testified, stating that Teresa was possessive and jealous and would kill Sanders before any other woman could have him. She was acquitted of Sanders' murder on September 22, 1964. Teresa gave birth to a second child, Sheila Gay Sanders, on March 16th, 1965. That she shot a man in the back and got acquitted. She's a woman. I know. And typically I'm all about, you know, like, yeah. you know, usually it's like, because it's a man. But right. In some cases. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Uh-huh. 
After Sheila's birth, Teresa began drinking heavily. She regularly drank at the local American Legion Hall where she met Estelle Lee Thornsberry, a disabled U.S. Army vet. The two began a relationship and eventually moved in together. During the relationship, sorry, I thought that was a woman. During the relationship, Teresa would routinely leave her children with Thornsbury while she went out drinking. Thornsbury began to question Teresa when she stayed out for days at a time and ended the relationship a few months later after he discovered that she was having an affair with his best friend. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Shortly after the relationship with Thornsbury ended, Teresa met and began a relationship with a U.S. Marine private named Robert Knorr. She soon became pre- soon became pregnant, and the couple married on July sixth, ni- July ninth, nineteen sixty six. Nor's third child, Suzanne Marlene Nor, was born September twenty seventh, nineteen sixty six. The couple had three more children: William Robert on September fifteenth, sixty seven; Robert Wallace on December thirty first, sixty eight; and Teresa Terry Marie on August fifth, nineteen seventy. Teresa and Robert's marriage began to deteriorate after Teresa began accusing her husband of having affairs. She is like the like epitome yeah. of insecure because she's the one cheating. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. Both Teresa and Robert were known to be volatile and would constantly beat each other and the kids. Fed up with Teresa's constant accusations, he left her in December 70 and was granted a divorce in 71. After the divorce, Robert attempted to see his children, but Teresa prevented him from doing so. Teresa would marry twice more. In 1971, she married a railroad worker, Robert Pullum. That marriage began to fall apart when Nora began leaving her children with Pullum while she stayed out all night drinking and partying. He divorced her in 1972 after he became convinced that she was having an extramarital affair. Her final marriage was to Sacramento Union copy editor Chester Chet Harris, whom she married in August 1976. Nora's daughter, Suzanne, grew close to Harris, which made Nora jealous. Oh, my God. She filed for divorce from Harris in November 1976 after she reportedly found out that Harris enjoyed taking consensual nude photographs of women. Nor was physically, verbally, and psychologically abusive towards her children. After her fourth divorce, her alcoholism and abusive behavior escalated, and she also gained a tremendous amount of weight and became quick-tempered and reclusive. Listen, we don't judge about the weight thing, (laughs) but everything else... She disconnected the home phone and would not allow the children to have visitors. Nora and her children lived in Orangevale, California for many years before moving into a two-bedroom apartment in Sacramento. Nora's oldest son, Howard, reportedly left the home before the move to Sacramento. According to neighbors, the apartment was filthy and smelled of urine. Neighbors also noticed that the children, whom Nora never let go outside, seemed fearful, nervous, and high-strung. For years, Nora abused and tortured her children in various ways, including beating them, force-feeding them, burning them with cigarettes, and throwing knives at them. Whoa! She made her children hold each other down while she beat and tortured them. In one instance, you know, I know that kids can't do this because, like, you know, they're just, they're, you know, in the eyes of children, mother is God. So you you can't, you know, do anything against your mom, whatever she tells you you're going to do. But, like, I hope... If this is ever happening to a sibling group, they all just figure out that they can like outnumber their mom and just like bum rush her, you know? Right. (laughs) But then you don't have a place to live or go or like I get it, but Jesus. She made her children hold each other down while she beat and tortured them. And in one instance, she held a pistol to her youngest daughter Terry's head and threatened to kill her. Oh my God. Nora primarily focused her anger and abuse on Terry's older sisters, Suzanne and Sheila. In an interview, Terry said her mother resented that Suzanne and Sheila were maturing and blossoming into attractive young women while she faced the prospect of losing her looks as she aged. Nora also believed that her fourth husband, Chet Harris, had turned Suzanne into a witch. So Suzanne received the worst of Nora's abuse. 
it's because you're jealous. Yeah. After one severe beating, Suzanne ran away from home. She was picked up by police and placed in a psychiatric hospital where she told staff that her mother abused her, nor denied the abuse claims and told st- uh, hospital staff that Suzanne had mental issues. Authorities did not investigate the matter further and released her back into the home. That's literally what you're for. Oh my the God. fucking cops don't do shit. Nor punish Suzanne for running away by beating her while wearing a pair of leather gloves. She also forced her other children to take turns beating their sister. In the subsequent weeks, Nor handcuffed Suzanne to the kitchen table and ordered her other children to stand watch over her. Nor refused to let Suzanne leave the house and forced her to drop out of school. Nor also put her, pulled her other children out of school and most of them never advanced past the eighth grade. In 1982, Nor became convinced that Suzanne was casting spells on her to get her to gain weight. I also am convinced. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Suzanne denied doing so, but Nor became angry and decided to shoot Suzanne from behind with a 44 caliber she kept in the bedroom drawer. I bet you still kept gaining weight, though, huh, bitch? Right. The bullet well, became lost. killed the second one. Right, right. The bullet became launched in her back, but Nora refused to allow Suzanne to seek medical attention and left her for dead in the family bathtub. Suzanne survived. So Nora began to nurse her back to health and allowed her other daughters to aid Suzanne as well. Suzanne eventually recovered without receiving professional medical treatment. God damn. I would not want to. Mm-hmm. Knowing my mother shot me in the back. Literally. Like the other stuff too. But then that would just be the last straw. And then you survive that? No, no. And then she left you for dead in a fucking bathtub? Listen. In July 1984, Nor and Suzanne got into another argument during which Nor stabbed her daughter in the back. See, she's... Oh, now she literally stabbed her in the back. Two people she's shot in the back and then she stabbed her in the back. What a fucking coward. Yeah. Just fight me. Come at me. Let's go. Give me a chance, you know? Right. Nor again refused to allow Suzanne medical treatment. A few weeks after the stabbing, Suzanne, fed up with the abuse, decided to move to Alaska. Nor agreed to let her go under the condition that Suzanne allow her to remove the bullet from her back so it could not be used as evidence in the event that Suzanne reported the abuse. She agreed. <laughs> Nor gave Suzanne Melaril capsules and liquor as an anesthetic, which caused her to pass out. While Suzanne was unconscious, Nor ordered her then 15-year-old son Robert to remove the bullet with an exacto knife. Susanna awoke the following day in immense pain. Over the following days, she developed sepsis and became delirious. Nor attempted to treat her with ibuprofen and antibiotics. The treatments were ineffective and her condition continued to decline. On July 16, 1984, Nor packed all of her belongings, Suzanne's belongings, in trash bags, and after binding Suzanne's arms and legs and placing duct tape over her mouth, ordered her sons Robert and William to put her in the car. They drove her to Squaw Valley, where Robert and William placed her on the side of the road on top of the bags containing her belongings. Nor then doused Susan in the bags in gasoline and lit her on fire. Suzanne's still smoldering body was found the following day. An autopsy, an autopsy determined that she was still alive when she was lit on fire. Oh, God. Due to the state of the remains, a positive ID was never made, and Suzanne was classified as Jane Doe, number 487384. Following Suzanne's death, Teresa Noor began directing the majority of her anger and abuse towards her daughter, Sheila. In May 1985, Noor forced Sheila into prostitution to support the family. Nor did not work and received money from the state of California. She was initially pleased with this arrangement due to the large amounts of money Sheila was earning and allowed Sheila to leave the house whenever she pleased. 
After a few weeks, Nora became angry and accused Sheila of being pregnant and contract and contracting an STD. You know, even if she did, that would be your fucking fault. Exactly. Which Nora claimed she caught from Sheila via a toilet seat. Sheila and. Sheila initially denied the accusations, so Nora beat her, hogtied her, and locked her in a hot closet with no ventilation. Nora forbade the other children to give Sheila food or water or to open the door to the closet. Terry Nora disobeyed her mother and gave Sheila beer. Terry Nora later said, Teresa wanted Sheila to confess. That was the mother's way. Beat them until they confess. To end the punishment, Sheila confessed to being pregnant and having an STD, but Nora would not let her out of the closet, claiming that Sheila was lying. Sheila died three days later on June 21st, 1985 of dehydration and starvation. Mm-hmm. Nora left Sheila's body in the closet for an additional three days before discovering that Sheila was dead. She didn't even know. Oh, my God. Three days. She didn't even know. Once again, Nora ordered her sons, William and Robert. Okay, poor William and Robert. Yeah. This is two of their sister's bodies that they've just gotten rid of. One wasn't even dead. To dispose of Sheila's body, which had begun to decompose, causing an odorous smell that filled the apartment. The boys placed Sheila's body in a cardboard box, which they disposed of near the airport in Truckee, California. Sheila's body was discovered a few hours after it had been disposed of, but was never positively identified and was classified as Jane Doe number 660785. Even though Sheila's body had been removed from the closet, the smell of decomp still lingered in the apartment. Nora became concerned that the smell and physical evidence in the closet could implicate her in Sheila's death. No fucking shit. On September 29th, 86, Nora moved the family's belongings out of the home and ordered her youngest daughter, Terry, to burn down the apartment. Oh my god! Fucking pyro, right? In an effort to destroy any physical evidence. During the night, Terry and Nora dumped three containers of lighter fluid on the apartment floor and set it on fire. The fire did little damage as neighbors quickly reported the fire before it spread. The closet in which Sheila died was not damaged. After Nora's arrest, investigators were able to remove the subfloor from the closet to test it for physical evidence. After leaving the Sacramento apartment, Nora went into hiding. Her surviving children, who were then by legal age, severed their ties with their mother. Nora's youngest child, 16-year-old Terry, also escaped her mother's care and used Sheila's identification card to pass herself off as a legal adult. The only child to remain with Nora was Robert Jr., who was then 19 years old. Nora and Robert Jr. moved to Las Vegas and attempted to keep a low profile. In November 91, Robert Nora Jr. was arrested after he finally fatally shot a bartender in Las Vegas bar doing an attempted robbery. He was sentenced to 16 years in prison. Shortly after Robert Jr.'s arrest, Nora left Las Vegas and relocated to Salt Lake City. After escaping from her mother, Terry Nora attempted to report her sister's murders to the Utah police, but they dismissed her stories as fiction, as did a therapist she visited. Oh my god, how dare you? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's crap. On October 28th, 93, Terry Nora contacted America's Most Wanted, who asked her to contact detectives in Placer County, California, in the county in which Suzanne's body was found, who took her claim seriously and followed up with an investigation. The detectives linked the two Jane Does found in the area in 84 and 85 to Terry Nora's detailed stories of her sister's death and concluded that she was telling the truth. Nora's son, William, was arrested on November 4th, 1993 in Woodland, California, where he had been living and working. Robert Nora Jr. was charged with his sister's murders while he was serving a 16-year sentence in Eli, Nevada for the 1991 murder of a Las Vegas bartender. On November 10th, 93, Teresa Nora was arrested at her home in Salt Lake City. At the time of her arrest, Nora was using her maiden name of Cross and was working as a caretaker for her landlord's 86-year-old mother. 
On, wow. Yeah. On November 15th, 93, Nora was charged with two counts of murder, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, and two special circumstance charges, multiple murder and murder by torture. Nora initially pleaded not guilty, but then made a deal with the prosecutor after learning that her son, Robert Jr., agreed to testify against her in exchange for a reduced sentence. She pleaded guilty on the condition that she be spared the death penalty. On October 17th, 95, Nora was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. She is incarcerated at California Institution for Women in Chino, California. She will be eligible for parole in 2027. William Nora was sentenced to probation in order to undergo therapy for participating in a sister Suzanne's murder. In exchange for his testimony, the prosecution dropped all charges against Robert Nora Jr., save for one count of being an accessory after the fact in relation to Sheila's murder. Robert Nora Jr. pleaded guilty to the charge and was sentenced to three years in prison, which was served concurrently with a 16-year sentence for the unrelated 1991 murder of a Las Vegas bartender. So, I, the only thing here that I, like, want to mention is that I feel bad obviously for all of her children but the ones that got charged the psychological abuse that they experienced like oh I'm, yeah that's why Robert Jr. shot some dude like he was fucked up yeah and I'm glad that you know the other one got off and they pretty much got off on those charges but then again like you know having to think about like they they did you know they had a choice but like mm, you know like I said mother is God and I know they were adults at some point but they had literally been like told to beat each other since they were children like yeah that that's the saddest part to me well, other than the deaths you know yeah God Jesus okay those are both really fucked up yeah. I only oh, have one more. And actually, if you go all the way back to, we have over 300 published episodes. I know. I get it. <laughs> but if you go all the way back to year one, one of our very first haunted happy hours, we did exorcisms, which was terrifying. But <laughs> it was like when we, you know, would turn off all the lights and we were together and we would like light candles and all that shit. Yeah. Bring that back. I know. But the reason I have this one here is because one of the scariest things to me is the exorcism of Emily Rose. And that is based on a real exorcism. And like all exorcism movies say they're based on like real exorcisms. But like this one has like a ton of audio and I'm not going to play it because we've already done that once. Mm -hmm. If you go back to the haunted happy hour exorcisms episode, but like this one is ookie spooky. <laughs> like, so the girl that um, uh, Exorcism of Emily Rose is based on, her name is Annalise Michael. And she grew up a Catholic in West Germany in the 1960s where she attended mass twice a week. And when she was 16, she suddenly blacked out at school and began walking around dazed. She did not remember the event. Her friends and family said she was in a trance-like state. A year later, she experienced a similar occurrence where she woke up in a trance and wet her bed her body also went through a series of convulsions causing her body to shake uncontrollably but what happened next was even more disturbing after the second time annalise visited a neurologist who diagnosed diagnosed her with temporal lobe epilepsy a disorder that causes seizures loss of memory and experiencing visual and auditory hallucinations temporal lobe epilepsy can also cause gishwin syndrome a disorder marked by hyper religiosity you can literally be if you're like have a disorder where you're too religious. 
Hey, that sounds like half of America. I know. <laughs> <laughs> After her diagnosis, Annalise began taking medication for her epilepsy and enrolled in university. However, the drugs she was given failed to help her, and as the year progressed, her condition began to deteriorate. Though she was still taking her medication, Annalise began to believe that she was possessed by a demon and that she needed to find a solution outside of medicine. She began to see the face of the devil wherever she went, and she said she heard demons whispering in her ears. When she heard demons telling her she was damned and would rot in hell while she was praying, she concluded that the devil must be possessing her. Annalise sought out priests to help her with her demonic possession, but all the clergy she approached rejected her request, saying that she would seek medical help and they needed permission of a bishop anyway. At this point, her delusions had become extreme. Believing she was possessed, she ripped the clothes off her body, compulsively performed up to 400 squats a day, which Jesus Holy fucking shit. Christ. Yeah. I did 30 and fucked up my leg, y'all. <laughs> You need to check your form next time you're here. Crawl, <laughs> crawled under a table and barked like a dog for two days. She also ate spiders and coal, bit the head off a dead bird, and licked her own urine from off the floor. Finally, she and her mother found a priest, Ernest Alt, who believed in her possession. He stated that she didn't look like an epileptic in later court documents. Her pictures are so disturbing. Whether they're possession or not, like just going from seeing her before and seeing her after is yeah, disturbing. Annalise wrote to Alt, I am nothing. Everything about me is vanity. What should I do? I have to improve. You pray for me. And also once told him, I want to suffer for other people. But this is so cruel. Alt petitioned the local bishop, who eventually approved the request and granted a local priest, Arnold Wren's permission to perform an exorcism, but ordered that it be carried out in total secret. By the 1960s, exorcisms were very rare among Catholics, but a rise in movies and books like The Exorcist in the 70s caused a renewed interest in the practice. Over the next 10 months following the bishop's approval of Annalise's exorcism, Alt and Rins conducted 67 exorcisms, lasting up to four hours on Annalise. Through these sessions, Annalise revealed that she believed she was possessed by six demons, Lucifer, Cain, Judas, Iskarot, Adolf Hitler, Nero, and Fleshman, a disgraced priest. God, these pictures. Like, y'all gotta look up these pictures if you're interested in this because they are... Ugh. This poor girl. Again, whether she's mentally ill or possessed, either way. If you're mentally ill enough to think you're possessed, mm -hmm. I feel so bad for you. Dude, I couldn't That's imagine getting to that point. Gotta be so terrifying. Doesn't matter if it's real or, you know, it's real enough to be in your head. Like, that. that's all that matters, mm -hmm. you know. All these spirits would jostle for power of Annalise's body and would communicate from her mouth with a low growl. The demons argued with each other with Hitler saying, people are stupid as pigs. They think it'll be over after death. It goes on. And Judah saying Hitler was nothing but a big mouth who had no real say in hell. Throughout these sessions, Annalise would frequently talk about dying to atone for the wayward youth of the day and the apostate priests of the modern church. She broke the bones and ripped the tendons. She broke the bones and ripped the tendons in her knees from continually kneeling in prayer. Over these 10 months, Annalise was frequently restrained so the priests could conduct exorcism rites. She slowly stopped eating and she eventually died of malnutrition and dehydration on Ju July 1st, 1976. She was 23 years old. And then, of course, if you know the story of, you know, Emily Rose and the, you know, the movie, 
it became a national sensation in Germany and her parents and the two priests who conducted the exorcism were tried with negligent homicide. They became before the court and even used a recording of the exorcism to try to justify their actions. The two priests were found guilty of manslaughter resulting from negligence and were sentenced to six months in jail, which was later suspended and three years of probation. The parents were exempted from any punishment as they had suffered enough, a criteria for sentencing in German law. So, that is honestly like yeah okay so the other stuff is terrifying abuse wise the other one Mm -hmm. is terrifying because the other stuff we know is real right right you can't argue that but like the other one you mean (laughs) they thought it was real and also that fucking audio yeah terrifying it is it is spooky like i can't listen to that like and just move on there are some things i can like do and like listen to and then just like move on with my day that's not one of them Mm -hmm. when i had to prep for the last one we did a couple years ago mm -mm. it was rough and again even if it was mental illness it still doesn't make it any less sad or any less dis- disturbing. The only way that it would make it more disturbing is mental illness. We have a, a handle ish on how to tr- treat that to an extent like demons. We all know shit, you know? <laughs> right. And how do you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I don't have a ton of belief in spirituality, but like I could be fucking wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. Who knows? What if I get possessed? And they're like, oh, we'll fucking show you. You know what I mean? Right. That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all, folks. I don't have anything else. That was a long one. <laughs> it was. Longer than normal. I, we used to go for a long time, but lately we're like, y'all don't want to listen to us talk for that long, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. I, this is why I didn't come up with two stories, because damn. <laughs> well, these true stories are insane. Like, you know. Yeah, man. They're so detailed. And, like, if you mm-hmm. leave stuff out, it's like, you know. Oh but yeah, that was like important. <laughs> she killed some people and did some stuff, and we have a movie. Like no, right? Exactly. Wait, wait, wait. We missed a few steps. You know, we missed you, the whole movie. You're gonna have to go back. Exactly. So if you've seen any of these, let us know what you think. And if you know the true story, how did they do in interpreting it? Because the only one that I've seen on this list is the Exorcism of Emily Rose, which I think is really good. Kristen doesn't like it, but that's fine. I just think it's a little boring. I think it's fascinating. <laughs> and also Jennifer Carpenter fucking killed it. Yeah, she really did. Terrifying. But yeah, thank you so much for hanging out with us. You can find us on all of our social medias. Everything is the Extra Sisters podcast, except for Twitter, which is at the Extra Sisters. And if you would like to join our Patreon, it is patreon.com slash the Extra Sisters podcast. Until next time, stay creepy. <laughs>